It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 141. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. How's life in Denver, Gary? Pretty good. Can't complain. Good How about too. you? Well, rainy, which actually we're kind of <laughs> sort of grateful for. It's been it's been a little too dry too long. So um, a little bit of moisture is appreciated. Yeah. So um, I probably don't sound any, well, actually, I probably do sound different. Uh, I am, uh, I, I've moved my office. Uh, I had an office, quote unquote, downstairs, although that's meaningless since this is an audio recording. Um, it's uh, uh, downstairs and it's going to end up getting remodeled in about a month. So I we designated a room upstairs. It's actually... Uh, technically, I suppose it would be a nursery. It's like the smallest bedroom in the house. Mm. And uh, I had used it years ago um, as kind of a video studio for a while. And I've hence, since then just moved all my equipment back in here. Um, it's kind of nice. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit more removed from the dog. So the barking won't, won't be <laughs> quite as um, uh, quite as nerve wracking for me. I worry about it all the time. And I, even though I know I shouldn't, um, but the one problem that this room has is that it is essentially bare walls. Uh, and mm. as a result, I don't know if it sounds different to you, but there's probably a fair amount of echo in the room. Mm, hard to compare, but it sounds, it, yeah. you sound fine. You, you I can have understand to hear it's every word song. you say. Yep. Um, it's one of those things where, um, I will listen to my own videos and hear like, you know, gosh, I wish you didn't have that little bit of echo in the background, that kind of stuff. And of course, um, um, it's leaf blower day. So we've got that going on outside. Anyway, what I decided to do, and I'm going to turn it on right now is something called crisp crisp.ai and hopefully I don't know if it's noticeable or not, but hopefully I sound a little bit different now than I did a few minutes ago. The idea behind CRISP is that it is designed to remove things like uh, echo and background noise. Uh, apparently, it can also remove barking dogs, which I find appealing for some reason. Mm. Um, the leaf blower is quite loud right now outside of my window. Um, so it's po very possible that um, it's doing its job removing that. Just looking at some of the uh, level indicators on the software that I'm running, when I don't talk, it's actually all the way down to zero. It's actually you know completely silent, even though in reality, it's not silent in this room at all. So I'm finding that kind of interesting. The reason I jumped on it, I tried it probably about a year ago, and I didn't really find that much difference myself, but that was when I was downstairs in my regular room. Um, I happened to be listening to another podcast. Yes, there are other podcasts. And uh, the one of the hosts said something about having forgotten to turn on crisp. Uh, so I realized that they were using it and they sounded pretty darned good. So I figured, you know what, given that I'm in this little echoey room, let's give it a try. So that's today's big experiment. Um, mm -hmm. That's one of two experiments, actually. The other is that I am concurrently recording this, um, uh, this podcast using um, OBS. Hmm. Okay. The, re the reason I'm doing that 
is because um, I actually have three cameras in my room just because you accumulate these things over time. You know how it is. Yeah. Camera. Then you, okay, you get a newer camera and then you get a newer camera. And by the, by the time you're done, you realize that all of a sudden you've got these cameras lying around. None of them are doing anything. So why not plug them in and do something interesting with them? Um, so I'm actually recording video of myself um, in, uh, in my office. Uh, so I may or may not post this. We'll see if, if it turns out interesting. Again, this also is another experiment, um, switching between these three cameras and OBS in real time uh, and seeing if uh, my recording of myself I expect OBS to do a fine job with that. What I'm really interested in is how well it records your side of the conversation, because that's a convoluted path, as I know you're aware of, um, you know, getting drivers to talk to one another and making sure that everybody can, can actually make it to the Definitely. Other. Yeah. So that's part of today's experiment. Like I said, if it turns out, if it works, then um, yeah, if I, I may very well post it on the Ask Leo um, YouTube channel. Uh, just for for uh, for grins, and we'll basically be able to watch me talk into a microphone for an hour. Woo yeah, yeah. I could have. Uh, well, if it works, maybe one one point I could do the same thing or something similar. Anyway, yeah. and then uh, one uh, one of us could edit the other person into a a single video, which is actually it's kind of interesting thing. I've done that before, where I've taken a Zoom conversation. I've had a zoom conversation with somebody and the quality is streaming live streaming quality. Right. So it's not, you know, it's not the same as if I have my camera and I'm directly streaming, you know, not over the internet, just right to the drive here. And what I did was I recorded myself normally, and I was also using zoom <laughs> and I asked them to do the same thing mm -hmm. and actually to make it simpler. I had them doing it on a phone. So I had their iPhone was recording straight to the phone and then they okay. were using zoom on their computer. And when we were done, I asked them to send me that video file of them talking. Right. I took the audio from zoom, but I took the video tracks from my file and from that person's iPhone oh, right. and I synced them all together. And, you know, I did all that without worrying about editing or anything. I just synced them all together first, then created uh, basically this one multi-track all synced together thing. And then I went in and I edited and I was able to swap uh, back and forth between who was talking when I right. wanted to, or right. sometimes had both of us on the screen. And, and of course the video was all high quality because the video okay. was kind of first person, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it, you know, it was, right. it was not being streamed. Um, so, but the audio quality was great. So I just, you know, use that, which is, you know, what we're doing here for the podcast in the first place. Yeah, a lot of people do. And I have to admit, I mean, the it's, if Zoom is going to fall down in terms of quality anywhere, it's going to be the video quality. Oh yeah. So, Especially because so recording it locally is, is the uh, by far the way to go. Yeah. I mean, even with just two people, your internet connection is being asked to stream your thing out and, and the other person's video in Right. just with two people, right. which is a lot more than say, if you're watching Netflix. You're just streaming in. Right. So yeah, it's uh it's not meant to be something that's recorded and then broadcast. I'm I know when they record TV shows, especially during the lockdowns, uh, they would have, you know, if they were trying to make it look like people were talking over Zoom in those episodes that were done completely that way, mm -hmm. they would actually have them record directly to cameras or iPhones right. in their in their homes. Right. And and then they would send. They would actually FedEx uh, cards, like either SD cards 
or in the case or of the some entire, shows, the entire the phone. phone. Yes, <laughs> I remember uh, that. Just because it was easier to, you know, you can get a, get an iPhone. I think a, a, a Mythic Quest did that for their special a lockdown episode is they just shipped entire phones to each person with a ton of storage. And then they had to record everything that was their part of the script right onto the phone in 4K and then ship the entire phone. I think they couriered the, the phones to the editors Right. That then got got it all. So, yeah, it's interesting. And you know, the funny thing is, you think, wow, what an expense to do that, to like buy these new phones, high end phones with the best cameras and right. most storage. It's still way cheaper than like you know how not that long ago you record you know TV shows with these really expensive cameras and right. sets and right. you know production assistants everywhere and and craft food services and all of that. So. <laughs> And now it's just somebody, you know, if if they're being fancy, they've got a tripod for the phone. So yep. cool. Yep. Yep. Anyway, what I wanted to, to talk about um, this week was something that kind of cropped onto my radar, popped onto my radar um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I know you and I chatted about it briefly just because it was something unique, um, at least in a new experience for me. And that was that one of my YouTube videos kind of took off a little bit. It's trending back down again, so we're achieving a you know back to normal. But it it actually popped up and got a lot of traffic for a while, and cumulatively, it is my most watched YouTube video um, of all time. It is uh, what's the best long term storage media. And before I want to to before I want to go into what transpired as a result of that video, what the video covers and what the comments, because there were many, 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 many comments on that video. Um, I was just kind of curious, um, you'd mentioned that um, you've been thinking about this as well. So I'm just kind of curious um, in what direction you ended up going. Well, I mean, uh, my context was that I had people that were actually asking me about um, questions about backing up that actually or they were about archiving, but they were thinking backing up. People confuse the two a lot. So I did a video on what is what makes them different, what makes backing up different than archiving, at least in the way that I use the term archiving. Right. And so then I ended up talking a bit about archiving, which then got people asking me what's the best way to archive, you know, once they understood what it was I was talking about. And um you know, I just basically, I mean, do you want, you want me to talk about like what I do for archiving now? Sure. Yeah. Cause yeah. that's one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to compare, well, I wanted to find out what you do and then compare it to what I do and, and how that all relates to the original question. Right. Well, I mean, with first thing I say is, uh, you know, the overriding thing about archiving is digital archiving. It's kind of like uh, nuclear waste storage. <laughs> you, there is no final complete solution, right? There is no, I've done it. It's archived forever. Right. It's it's it requires maintenance. Not only does it require maintenance because things deteriorate, uh, but also uh, archiving systems get better and better. Like for instance, uh, I may have back in 1988 uh, taken some you know end of a semester of school, put all my final projects onto a floppy disk, labeled it spring 1988, and said I'm done. This is archived forever and ever on this <laughs> floppy disk. I mean, of course, that floppy disk, uh, if I still had it, may not work now. Um, but also, of course, much better ways of actually storing that tiny amount of data that's on that floppy right. uh, in 2021. So they, uh, but either way, if floppy disks have remained 
the only way to archive things. I probably at some point would have wanted to go and transfer that to a fresh new floppy disk. Uh, as it turns out, didn't need to do that because at some point I was able to transfer a ton of floppy disks to a CD-ROM. Mm -hmm. And then at some point with a collection of CD-ROMs, I was able to transfer a bunch of those to DVDs, the mm -hmm. DVD uh, read writables. And then at some point I was just able to get a hard drive and transfer all these DVDs to a hard drive. And each iteration, the, the storage got larger, it got faster, it got easier to access. I mean, certainly, can you imagine a you know massive box of either CDs or floppies trying to find something on it as opposed to one hard drive where I could just do a quick file search <laughs> on right. and find what I want. Um, and also it gets easier to maintain. So hard drives have been my thing for a while now, but the hard drives keep getting bigger and faster. Mm -hmm. So whereas I may have originally had a bunch of 200 gig hard drives, you know, to, <laughs> uh, now I've, I can actually archive everything onto a several terabyte hard drive. Right. Um, and, and it's, it, you know, it's, for me, it has coincided nicely the, the size versus time kind of thing. Because if the idea is every few years, take all of my archive data and move them to something new, uh, that's about the time when it's like, hey, there is something new. You know, now I can get a cheap five terabyte drive to put all this stuff on. Whereas mm -hmm. when I last worked with the archive, uh, you know, it, that would have been really expensive or maybe didn't exist. And I had a one terabyte drive and I, you know, that I put things on. So just you know, that's the plan for the future. Right now, maybe, I think it's actually, I'm trying to think, is a five terabyte drive for my actual archive for things that I want to keep forever. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I've got like a 14 terabyte drive for my backup. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I've got five terabytes of stuff backed right. up forever. Um, probably when I need to replace that drive, it'll be with something bigger, or we may actually have a, a movement to a new type of, drive. I don't know if that'll be, right. I don't think it'll be SSD. I think SSD is, is, you know, it's here and it's fine, but it's not, hasn't replaced the hard disk drive for archiving purposes. Right. So it had to be something better than just a more expensive, faster SSD. Um, uh, people ask me all the time, actually, should I use an SSD or a hard disk for either backing up or archiving? And I always respond that SSD is kind of a waste for both. Exactly. Because yep. it's you're paying for the speed, right? And um, not using it, <laughs> yeah. You don't need the speed for either backing up or archiving, and you also the downside is that they're not as big. I mean, right. you can get a much bigger hard drive. Yeah, I'd rather spend you know three hundred dollars on a fourteen terabyte drive right. than more than three hundred dollars on a four terabyte SSD or something uh, for, for archiving purposes. But I don't know what what'll be the next thing right now. In 2021, it's a, a five terabyte hard drive is my ultimate archive of all of my stuff. And I'm able to back up that archive both as part of my time machine backup and as my online backup. Ah, uh, that's what you were. Okay. I was, I was going to ask about yeah. that. Um, but that's just a backup. I don't even, I, the backup that I don't even think about. It's just, right. I include that drive in a back. It's always attached to my Mac Pro. It's right. included in those backups. Right. I don't think about it that the backups there are for disasters only, you know, um, <laughs> unlike, unlike with my, uh, regular stuff, right. Whereas a backup might be a way to go back to like, a, you know, take away a mistake or right. something accidentally deleted. That's 
almost impossible to happen on an archive. I'm not accessing my archive in that way. Right. Um, so it's for like right now, if the archive drive would fail, I could restore it to a new archive drive from one of those two backups. Right. Um, whereas I also tell people that an alternative to that, if you don't want to do that, that's fine, is to simply have a duplicate archive, archive A, archive B, right? And just when it's time to do your you know, end of the month cleaning or end of a big project cleaning, and you want to take some stuff and say, I'm going to archive this, I'm done with this. You put it on both archive A and archive B. And then you have, you know, your, your archive in two different places. That's a that's a fine way to handle archives too, in my my opinion. And I did that a, a long time ago, but I, that's just not how I do it now. It's fascinating because um, what you're doing and have done parallels uh, what I've done over the years, um, actually surprisingly closely. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest difference right now, um, well, well, I'll. I'll the biggest end difference is that I'm on a six terabyte drive instead of a five. Oh, well, right. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I think one thing that's worth clarifying. I'm ordering is, an eight terabyte drive right now. As we speak. Uh, right? Yeah, just to show you. No. Um, one of the things that I think is worth clarifying for folks that are listening would be what it is we mean, what specifically we mean between the difference between, say, a backup or an yes. archive. Mm -hmm. To me... Um, a backup, its its purpose is what I'll call um, immediate disaster recovery. Uh -huh. uh, that could be a deleted file. It could be a, a recovering an old version of a file, as you pointed out. It could be dealing with a hard disk failure. But it's something that is in what I'll call a short time frame, typically a day, uh, upwards of a week, maybe a month or two. Uh, that that is the window uh, for a backup's useful lifespan. That's kind of the the thing you're targeting. Archive is exactly the opposite, right? Archive is, as you put it, forever. Um, mm -hmm. we'll, have to, we'll talk a little bit about that too, I think. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know what? I've got this stuff. I don't need it today. I don't need it tomorrow, but I don't want to get rid of it because I will want to use it someday. Great example um, are photographs. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know, all of my photographs, uh, they get both back up, backed up and archived in a couple of different ways. Um, to... to Basically, replicate your story. Uh, indeed, I started with floppy disks, uh, both five and a quarter and then three and a half, because, of course, that was an, an improvement. Um, I definitely was backing things up or archiving things to uh, writable CD-ROMs uh, the moment that I could, to be honest, just because uh, they held so much more than those teeny tiny floppy drives. Um, I skipped DVDs. I also skipped Blu-rays. I actually ended up going straight to hard drives. Mm. And then, uh, but that was a process. Actually, it was kind of a painful process because at that point I probably had upwards of, uh, I'll say maybe, I don't know, 50, 80, 100 CDs full of data that, um, sure, some of it was probably redundant. Um, some of it was probably stuff that um, if I were to, look at it individually, I might elect, yeah, I can keep that, I can get rid of that. But when you're archiving and when you're, especially when you're moving to larger media, um, it's just way, way easier to just say, copy everything, just copy everything, um, mm -hmm. just in case. So I actually went through a process, it was a couple of months long, if I remember right, where um, I would bring up a stack of CDs from the basement and then very carefully, one by one, stick them in the CD drive, run a script that I had put together, 
that collected the contents of that CD and put it in a folder on a, on the hard drive that eventually became the long-term archive. Um, the hard drives, like you, have migrated. Um, I think I started on half terabyte drives because that's what I had a lot of. I had a lot of these Seagate, um, uh, I forget what they called them, uh, the Seagate Go drives or whatever. I had mm -hmm. several of those um, as half terabyte drives. They were very useful. I used them as backup drives. I used them as portable drives when I was traveling around. But eventually, you know, half a terabyte isn't what it used to be. So they ended up becoming uh, archive drives downstairs and, and connected to the machine down there. And again, as drives got bigger, uh, or as drives cycled out, that's actually more correct. More correctly, the the approach that I've used is, I've not necessarily purchased a drive to be an archive drive. Mm. I've instead purchased a drive to be like a primary drive for the machines that I'm working on, but taken what they had before and put that on the old machine down in the basement that then acts as my archive. Mm. Um, yeah. But in each step, then it's a matter of, okay, fine, copy everything from the old stuff to the new stuff. And it was so much faster when you're copying hard drives to hard drives. Um, and certainly yeah. so much easier, right? It's 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 not a hundred manual steps, right? Right. It's yeah. it's you know a couple, you know, if you're as you're consolidating some hard drives, uh, but you're just copying bits from one from one drive to another, and it's just all of a sudden you've got everything in one place. Um, it's searchable, everything is findable. Um, you know, depending on the search technology that you're using, um, it's either searchable at the file name level or searchable at the file content level. Um, it just makes a whole lot of sense. Now, the one thing that you mentioned that I was, one of the things that um, um, got my attention as you were just, as you were saying is you were copying to an archive drive. And then you talked about how sometimes the best way to do that is instead to copy to two archive drives. So you don't necessarily have to include your archives in your ongoing backups. Mm -hmm. My approach is more like the latter, except uh, what I have is on the machine that is my archive machine. Uh, I just have a nightly script that replicates any changes from the archive drive to its backup. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got two drives. And then every night, one just gets mirrored to the other. And it's really only copying updates, so it doesn't really take that long. The reason I'm not using backup software is because that's a, a Linux machine. Um, it's actually, again, an old uh, repurposed machine. Uh, it is the, um, it's my previous, previous, previous desktop machine, <laughs> right? It goes back three or four generations. It's an old uh, quad core, uh, uh, 486 machine, or no, Pentium something or other, I think. After I, It's been a while. Uh, it has a maximum of eight gigabytes of RAM in it. So it's not going to, you know, it's, by today's standards, it's not um, a, a fantastic machine, but it's lasted very well for me. And it's serving this purpose well, because it's a glorified file server that yeah. I can run scripts on. One way that you and I differ a little bit in our mm -hmm. archives, you mentioned uh, archiving your photos. So I follow the basic rule that things only exist either on my, I call it my primary storage right, or my archive, never in both places. Interesting. So, so my photos, you know, my, the mass amount of my photos, mm -hmm. most of them, they are on my primary storage that gets backed up two different ways. And actually it's cloud stored in the cloud anyway. So two right. different ways, plus it's cloud storage. Um, but if you look at my archive, you do find photos, but they're not my main photos. They're, they are archives of various 
projects, things that I've done. Um, a, a better example might be videos, for instance. Uh, I may, on my primary storage, I may have videos that I've created. Like I'm thinking personal projects, not work projects, like a video right. I've created of a you know an event or something like that. I may have the final product on my uh, regular storage here, uh, primary storage, the source files, you know, the Final Cut Pro or iMovie library or whatever that I'm sure I'm never going to use again. Mm-hmm. Um, I was done with it. That gets archives, but I don't have the same file between the two of them. Right. So that's like a that's like another thing. Because then, if you, for me, if I think about it, if I've got the same file in both places, now they're going to get out of sync. They may not. I mean, if it's a photo, I may never, you know change that photo, do anything with that photo. I, th- I guess I think of photos as more right. as collections of photos. So, you know, I've got my entire photo library. Well, now my photo library is out of sync because the one on the archive drive doesn't have anything from this year. Whereas the one, you know, so anyway, my rule is you, you archive something to take it off of your primary storage. And yep. then everything is there once. It's just one of those two you're right. Places. Yeah, you're so. right. Our, our approach is definitely different. My approach is um, archive is, it's two things. Yeah. Um, it is uh, stuff that exists only in the archive and is, you know, obviously, as I said, at least replicated across a couple of pieces of hardware so that it's backed up kind of mm-hmm. in the archive, but it's in only that place. But it is also a repository for uh everything, I don't want to say everything, but almost everything that I'm working on live. So as an example, uh, the um, again, I'm, I'm big into these overnight batch files and scripts. Um, so on my primary machine, mm-hmm. there is a script that runs every night that replicates, uh, let's say, all of my Dropbox to my archive and all of my OneDrive to my archive. Uh, and a bunch of other things, including like the video work and so forth. Um, even my virtual machines, those get replicated off to the archive. So in a sense, it's not necessarily an archive. It's acting a little bit more like a backup. But that allows me to do a couple of things. One is I can delete safely from my primary storage, right? If I delete a virtual machine because I need the disk space and I really don't think I'll ever use that virtual machine again, I'm safe to do so. Because mm-hmm. if I ever need to go back and retrieve that virtual machine, I've got its last known instance in my archive. Uh, so there's this automated replication of things that's going on that includes all of my live work. And mm-hmm. that actually works fairly well for me. Like I said, it gives me, it's it's a safety net under my safety net, which is actually something that I wanted to talk about as well, because one of the things that I, backup is one of those things that if it's good to do, it's good to overdo. Is has apparently become my philosophy, because for example, photos are a great thing. That, that I focus a lot on photos because um, of how irreplaceable they ultimately are. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you've taken a photo, you can't take it again. I mean, you could take a lot of photos that might be like it, but there are definitely times in your life um, that aren't going to come back again, or situations, or people, or whatever that just once you have the photo, that's the, the photo, and if you lose the photo, it's gone forever. So my photos, for example, they all go into Dropbox, um, which then instantly, instantly, they, they, it ends up getting replicated to the cloud. So it acts as the, you know, my offsite storage, so to speak, for, um, for the photographs. It then automatically gets replicated to a couple of other machines. But then overnight, like I said, one of my machines then replicates 
one of the copies of Dropbox, um, it actually ends up creating a zip file or, or a tarball, one or the other, um, that just stuffs the current copy of Dropbox into a folder in my machine downstairs. So even if even if Dropbox were to fail completely and delete everything from my Dropbox account, I'd still have a backup copy of everything that was in it um, last I saw it. Um, so there's definitely a lot of, of overcommitment to backing up here. Um, if for me to lose a photo in my backup, in, in my Dropbox, or to, for me to lose a photo uh, would require like, all of the equipment here at home to be destroyed. And then all of uh, Dropbox's servers to be destroyed or my account to be destroyed um, <laughs> simultaneously, right? And given that Dropbox, I believe, actually sits on top of AWS S3, uh, that means that a bunch of data centers around the planet would all have to die as well. So the chances of actually losing a photograph right now are pretty slim. And yeah, that's exactly the way I want it. That's exactly what backing up for those kinds of things is all about. Yep. Not everything's on that scale, right? Like, for example, uh, my videos, they're too freaking big, right? I'm just not going to upload those on a regular schedule um, unless I need to upload them for actual display. So my work files, like you were saying, the projects for videos and so forth, those end up getting just shoveled off to the archive. Um, and you know what? If everything goes here at home, then well, fine. Uh, the, that's you know, those will go with it. I suspect those will be the least of my uh, my concerns in a situation like that. Um, but the photographs are the kinds of things that, you know what, after I rebuild my new home and buy my new computers and reconstruct my life, um, I'll want those photos to still be around. Yep. So um, it's interesting because one of the, um, uh, so let's go back to the, the video that I started talking about, which is what's the best long-term storage media. And I think what a lot of people took that to mean is, Physically, what's the best media? Is it a hard disk? Is it a DVD? Is it Blu-ray? Is it a whatever? A lot of people commented that um, M1, I guess, or M-discs are the way to go, right? They're apparently a, a, um, a form of incredibly high reliability, long-lasting, uh, I don't necessarily want to call it an optical media, but I think it might be, um, that is intended to last like 100 years. Mm which is fine. Uh, other people have, have said, well, paper, paper is the way to go. If for mm. anything, because computers are so unreliable. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, I'll have a story about that in a second. And then, um, you know, other people are saying, well, it's gotta be tape, right? Well, clearly they're coming from um, large corporations that invest heavily in tape for backup, but that's not necessarily the same thing for as for archiving, as we've discussed. A lot of people point out the issue that, uh, you know, old movies are deteriorating. Um, every piece of media that I've discussed so far deteriorates. What we're talking about here is the time frame over which uh, that deterioration is to be expected. Um, the CDs that we created 20 years ago may or may not be readable today. The floppy disks may or may not be readable today. Um, and of course, there's a whole separate issue about things like file formats uh, and which of those will be readable in 20 or 50 years, because we're definitely already encountering situations where people have um, files written in older uh, file formats that they're having difficulty. You know, even though the, the files are still around, they're just not having difficulty getting current modern software to read those. Apparently WordStar falls into that category. Did you use WordStar back in the day? No, 
No, uh, I didn't. WordStar was like the first text editor slash word processor that I used way, 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 way back yeah. in the day. And um, apparently that's a really difficult file format to, uh, uh, to get read these days, which both surprises me and doesn't. Uh, but it's, it's another aspect to this whole long-term archiving thing that, that people were quick to bring up. I think the biggest takeaway from that I wanted people to be thinking about, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up today is because what you and I are doing is exactly what I believe people should be doing. Because honestly, there is no best long-term storage media. The best long-term storage is a process where you migrate the things you want to save regularly from existing technology to newer technology. As you said, that five or six terabyte drive that you and I are using today, who knows what we're going to have available to us in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we should be prepared, though, at some point in the next 10 years to say, you know what? Yep, we're going to get that petabyte drive right, or whatever it is um, and connect it up to our system with whatever you know USB 7 connection happens to be at the time um, and <laughs> migrate all of our data. Yeah, my, my yeah. bet now mm -hmm. would be on it being just online. Technically, it already, you can already do that, right? We can already just store it all online. Well, I could... Sure. One of the interesting things about online storage is that behind the scenes, yeah, it's the storage back. providers are doing exactly what we just described. Yeah, they do backups. Uh, well, they're constantly locations. swapping out old hard drive for old yeah. hard drive technology for newer technology, whatever that might be. Yep. It's totally transparent to us, mm -hmm. um, which is exactly how it should be. Now, of course, and I understand that there are certainly people that have concerns about storing things online. There's privacy issues. There's account loss issues, which I actually think to be the bigger one, just because of the number of times that I'm sure you and I both encounter you know, people who have lost access to their online accounts. If their online account is their online storage, that's a problem. It's essentially a single point of failure. But the, the bottom line is that, yes, it may all go online or be primarily online. But as things change, be it online or off, as technologies change, the way to deal with um, hardware obsolescence, for lack of a better term, is to migrate your archives. Migrate everything to more current technology every so often. Yep. 20, 30 years ago, it was floppy drives. That's laughable today. What we have today may be laughable in 30 years. That's why we're doing this migration. In, in a sci-fi book that I read, this whole debate came up and the author is the type that actually you know, researches things meticulously. So uh, the whole debate came up about how to, like, how can we record something that if millions of years from now, civilization is gone from earth gone from the solar system that we, we can record a basic history of what went on here right um and and preserve it in such a way and of course obviously things like data drives and all that just no no way you know right. when you're talking millennia right. not just millennia millions of years it didn't work um and so the the eventual uh thing was to carve in stone <laughs> uh <laughs> you know i words basically telling a story on pluto's moon charon 
because being far away from the sun, it wouldn't be enveloped uh, and could possibly even survive a supernova of our sun. Oh, right, right. And carving in stone deep enough and well-defined enough uh, could, it had the best chance of, say, I guess they were maybe something like 10 million years, 10 million years from now, still being around, whereas no other solution seemed to be able to last that long. Pretty so, funny. Uh, a lot of people mentioned to me uh, Voyager. And the uh, the disk, yeah, the disk Voyager yeah. that has some amount of information that uh, uh, is you know presumably would last as long, right? A, mm-hmm. a very very long time, and it solves the whole sun going supernova problem by just leaving by not being here. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think it's funny when we start musing down that path. You know, what intelligent species is going to encounter it, and are they going to make any heads or tails out of whatever it was we've provided. I mean, that's part of the problem too, right? You can carve something in stone. You can put images on a disc that you know presumably will last millions of years. But how do you actually represent information in a way that an intelligence of unknown origin and unknown configuration stands a chance yeah. of, of even understanding? Uh, I sometimes marvel that, you know, we, we tend to think of, uh, porpoises, dolphins as being super smart, uh, or even crows, I think, supposedly have an intelligence yeah. that's, that's very high, or chimpanzees, whatever. And yet, we've not been able to really communicate with them. Mm-hmm. What do we think our chances are <laughs> being able to, to put something aside that we expect somebody a million years from now to be able to understand? Anyway. Yeah, it's it, it's a fundamental fundamental problem. Fortunately, we don't have that problem with our archives because hopefully, right. <laughs> uh, you know. Well, I, that I, actually also brings up another point that kept coming yeah. up, and I, I want to take a quick uh, uh, side path here because this this is what leads to an answer to it to a question that a lot of people rose. So, one of the other videos that um, I stumbled into. It's a video I actually recorded almost five years ago. It's one of the reasons I think backups are so important is what it's called. And of course, both of the videos I've been talking about are going to be linked to um, in the show notes. This is a video where I discuss why I've got my photographs specifically backed up in such a way that it would take basically nuclear annihilation of most of the planet for me to lose a photo. When I was nine, my mom and I went to Holland for the first time. We went to visit my grandparents. And the day we arrived, we got picked up by my aunt and uncle. They took us to a coffee shop and explained to us that unfortunately, the day before we we got there, uh, they had the chance to tell us, but they didn't want to tell us because we might not have come. My grandparents' home had caught on fire. The upper floor, uh, which is where my mom's room had been back in the day, uh, had been essentially annihilated. It had been burned to a crisp. Part of what burned was not just things like mementos, keepsakes, that kind of stuff, but because my parents were immigrants, and at the time they could not take a lot with them back in 1952, they immigrated to Canada. They left behind Photographs. Mm. On top of that, it turns out that my grandfather was one of the first people in his region to actually get into photography. 
So he had a lot of old photography equipment, a lot of old photos, a lot of old negatives, a lot of old stuff uh, that was gone, just gone overnight, literally overnight. And that stuck with me. Uh, we've you know gotten a number of pictures because, of course, there were folks that had prints, various aunts and uncles had some subset of information, but there was never this, this you know, there, there wasn't a backup. <laughs> right. There was no backup of all of this stuff that had been stored in my grandparents' home. And I know that my story is not unique, right? I know that this has happened time and time again to various people. Almost every house fire has this as a side effect. Uh, some, some amount of precious data loss. So that's what drives me in a lot of ways to uh to, to back up photographs as much as I do. It also is my instant response to when people tell me, no, no, I don't trust computers. Paper is better. Trust me on this. <laughs> Paper yeah. is not better. Um, you've got one copy. Uh, if you've got a negative, that's great. You've got one negative. Every copy you make off that negative is of inferior quality. And if you lose the negative, you've lost it. Yep, you could take a you can take a scan of the print of the negative, but each step away from the original, uh, you've lost some quality. Not true for digital, right? Digital copies trivially. Yep. We can back it up trivially. It's wonderful that way. Um, so I'll stand by um, at least from a um, uh, an administrative point of view, that digital is far, far better than analog. I don't want to, I'm not getting into the visual aspects of it that I know some people are passionate about, or especially when it comes to um, um, LP records versus CDs. Fine, have that argument. But in terms of keeping data, replicating data, copying data, backing up data, um, digital is far, far superior. Um, and you'll never see me replicate or um, uh, mentioning paper. As a side note, one of the things that people will mention is that, you know, there's this paper from millions or, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago or thousands of years ago that has survived. Great. Yep. You know, Dead Sea Scrolls as one example. Great. Mm. Wonderful example. That's survivorship bias. Yep. A small, small piece of all the paper that was in existence at that time survived. I'm sure the same will be true for whatever format we happen to choose today, if even if it's the wrong format. But it's a tiny, tiny tip of a much larger corpus of information that has been lost forever. I'm one of those people that whenever we talk about um, the fire at the Library of Alexandria, I get sad. <laughs> Right, mm. because so much wonderful information was lost. Obviously, it wasn't backed up. Some of it might have been actually just because one of the ways they dealt with this was by literally manually copying scrolls. But so much of it was lost and lost forever. So yes, digital all the way. Yep. Um, the other comment that I get is that nobody's going to care when I die. When I'm gone, nobody's going to care about the information I leave behind. Well, yeah, I was just actually about to bring that up. Yeah. And have you ever, mm -hmm. oh, I mean, have you ever been like, a, go to an antique store and then you, if you look closely enough at any antique store, somewhere there's a basket or box filled with photos. Right. And, and there'll be, and you know, for a while, my wife actually collected uh, wedding photos. Cool. And those weren't, it's not like these are copies of wedding photos. These are old enough that these were the wedding photos, the wedding photos. And yeah. it ended up in a box with other wedding photos in an antique store. And they're just, nobody 
cares? And by us buying it and displaying them, it's like, we have no idea who these people are, but whoever descended from them, if anybody uh, has no idea this photo exists, there's, I mean, it's like they, it, the data goes on, even though the person who cared about the data is no longer around. The, and, and that's actually one of the arguments against, I get against basically a lot of what I'm discussing in terms of archiving and, and data retention mm. um, is that, you know, when I die, nobody's going to care. Yeah. I beg to differ. And I do that in a couple of different ways. Now, firstly, I have no children. Um, I know you do. Um, I have cousins with children who probably might care about the crazy aunt and uncle off in America, because all my relatives are in Holland. Uh, they, um, uh, the, the, the way I look at it is not so much looking forward. I expect this person or that person or even that organization or, or that anything to care about what I've done. All I know is I wish I had the equivalent for my ancestors, uh -huh. for my grandparents, for my great-grandparents. I wish I had more information about them. Even the information that I know used to exist, I wish it still existed. And that's what I want. That's what I want people to think about. I want them to prevent that from happening. I want them to prevent somebody 50, 100 years from now saying, you know what? I wish I had that picture of my uncle or some more information about my grandparents or whatever. I know it existed because they were snap happy back in the 2020s, right? They were taking pictures of everything. Um, including their lunch. I don't necessarily want the pictures of their lunch, although who knows, some archivist might find that interesting. Hmm. But I want the pictures of them, right? The selfies, I want those. Um, and I I would hate for that to just fall away due to what is sometimes referred to as digital decay. Uh, so I don't know who's going to care about my stuff. Maybe nobody, but I want to make sure it's there. Make sure that in case somebody does. I've got... Uh, some uh, from the 1950s, some eight millimeter silent black and white video mm -hmm. from my, my family, uh, I guess my great grandparents and grandparents. Um, and it's, I digitized it. Excellent. It's sitting on the archive, the very archive drive that we've been talking about, it sits yep. on there. Yep. And I often think just, you know, going back, okay, this says it's 1954. Here they are in the beach in Atlantic City, and it was it was somebody probably my grandfather that was holding the the eight millimeter camera that he thought was so cool. Yeah, it wasn't even Super this, Eight; it was eight. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't Super Eight. Yeah, Super Eight came later. He did have one of those, but then uh, and and he's like, I wonder if he would imagine that in the year twenty twenty one, it it'd be sitting digitized on a right. on an archive drive. And, you know, his grandson's house and oh, another yeah. state and it would, you know, perfectly preserved there and, and ready to be passed on. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, yeah. it's funny because I've got the ex I mean, almost the exact same scenario. I have um, uh, a couple of super eight, oh, no, eight millimeter and some super eight uh, millimeter films that were shot of, well, the eight millimeter was of me as a baby, literally less than mm -hmm. a year old. Yeah, I've got some uh, of that too. <laughs> and it's one of those cases where a couple of years ago, I decided, you know what? The only way 
that these films are ever going to be looked at again is if they get digitized, right? We're not going to set up a projector, even if we can find one for eight millimeters um, and just watch these things, then put it all away again. Mm-hmm. So yes, I went through that process. I found um, a great, actually, online um, a service um, uh, down near Atlanta, actually, that does this. They do. They specialize in these kind of conversions, and they did an awesome conversion on this stuff. And yeah, you're right. They're in my archives. They're actually in my Dropbox with my photos. Right. So they're um, they're, they're part of the um, nuclear annihilation uh, protection that uh, all of my photos happen to go with. But, uh, and sure, I've got a webpage on my personal blog where I talk about it and I play them. So if you can, you can watch little tiny Leo walking through, um, I think it was <laughs> the, the Butchart Gardens in Victoria back in 1957, or actually it would have been 58 by the time I was actually uh, upright. Um, so yeah, that's all cool stuff. Will anybody care in 50 years? I don't know. I just wanted to be there in case somebody does. Yeah. Um, and there's a good chance that there may be. And the other thing, so I was also going to mention that uh, I think you know that I do, um, I have I have too many online publications, but one of them is Not All News is Bad. Mm-hmm. And it runs daily stories about things that are good, things that have, have, have you know, happened that are good news stories that help us you know, remember that not everything is horrific and, and falling apart. Um, the One of the stories that I think I might be running maybe tomorrow or the day after, I'm not sure now, um, is literally what we just discussed. It's somebody who discovered a marriage certificate hidden in a photograph. So it was a framed photograph with the photograph in the front um, and then the marriage certificate behind the photograph and then you know the usual cover paper in the back. Uh, and they discovered it. They got the picture somehow, but they discovered it. And then they did the online thing to say, okay, let's see if we can find out who these people were and who it belongs to. And uh, the good news aspect of this, of course, is that they were able to uh, actually return this original marriage certificate to the descendants of the married couple. They were able to identify them and track down their descendants and uh, actually get that to them, which is, I, I kind of think that stuff is awesome. That's one of the other things I've done too, is I've actually, in addition to scanning a bunch of old photographs that I have uh, from my folks, a lot of the old documents also get scanned, again, for preservation perspective, point of view. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, that's uh, those are the kinds of stories that, um, I don't know, Maybe someday that'll be uh, be uh, our our stuff, right? My marriage yeah. certificate, or or my photograph, or who knows? Maybe. Anyway, so that's my rant on archiving and backing up. And please do it. Uh, please don't discount the value of what you might leave behind, even if you don't have kids, even if you don't think anybody will be interested. Um, there's a good chance that somebody will be. Mm-hmm. Cool. Let's so, see. What, yeah. Um, so, um, since I've been just mentioned disasters and and the world falling apart, um, this is an odd, ain't it cool entry for me, but it's something that I was researching this morning. Uh, one of the things that my wife and I have been talking about is, you know, there's all this stuff going on, disasters going on, everything from, uh, you know, the, the earthquake in Haiti 
to the Afghan um, um, exodus, if you will, the refugees exiting, leaving Afghanistan, to the uh, hurricane, um, was it Ida down in uh, New mm -hmm. Orleans, to the fires in California. We always struggle with these situations about, we want to help, but who do we give some money to that we know will actually get something done and get it done in the right place? There are these huge organizations and you know, every so once in a while you hear about scandal here, scandal there, you know, the, the CEO makes too much money or the money, it's it's difficult sometimes to, to, to be, uh, to feel like you know that your money is going to where you expect it to go to the actual cause you're trying to support. This morning I discovered something called global giving and it is globalgiving.org and it is essentially um, philanthropy using the crowdfunding model. They, uh, in fact, if you go to uh, globalgiving.org, you have the opportunity to donate to specific causes and the pages look a lot like a page you might find on GoFundMe or any of the other crowdfunding um, uh, sites. And I'm just finding it really interesting. I did a fair amount of research to understand just how legit these people are. They seem to be very legit. They're very highly related in the uh, uh, on the nonprofit uh, websites um, that you know, track these kinds of things. And they seem to uh, really do what we're looking for. The thing that makes them unique is that they don't come in and try and do something. They instead funnel the donations to the local organizations that already know what needs to be done, that already have the boots on the ground, that already have the support of local local governments, local organizations, local people. And that to me seems like an incredibly effective way of um, basically helping out uh, rather than coming in and saying, you know, here's what you should do. Let's support the people that are already there. And as an individual contributor from, you know, the other side of the continent or the other side of the planet, um, there's no way that we could find out all these different organizations that might be um, able to do what it is we're looking to do. Um, so Global Giving, as my little plug for go Global Giving, they mm. seem to be an organization that does uh, what I just described. And uh, we're going to be uh, donating some cash uh, to help out the folks that uh, that are currently in need because there seem to be a fair number of them. Thanks. Very cool. Um I, uh, I want to talk about a book that I just finished reading. Uh, it's a fairly new book called Coders, written by Clive Thompson, who is a journalist, written for Wired and other things. So it is a uh, big book on uh, basically looking at the profession of computer programming, computer science, computer engineering. Um, excellent book. As a computer scientist myself and pro lifelong programmer, uh, I found it fascinating. It starts off with about, you know, a little history, the early days, uh, how people get into coding, the whole magic of you know, discovering computer programming and uh, how there's so many similar stories from all over the world of people that discovered computer programming, whether it was in the 50s or 80s or 2000s. Um, and uh, and then how how it's evolved as a profession, how big companies are desperate for coders and how coders have changed the world um, and their famous ones, not famous ones and all of that. He the first part of the book was 
uh, my favorite. And that was about like, just, it got me so enthusiastic about coding again. I, I, I just, it was hard for me to actually concentrate on my Mac most videos. Cause I wanted to just open up Xcode, start programming something. Go write some code. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I know the feeling. <laughs> and it, and it made me reminisce too, about myself becoming a coder as a yep. kid and discovering, you know, uh, coding on a, the early computers. And I think then, we actually talked about our origin story. Yeah, in the yeah. Previous episode. It was fun. So it got me all about that. And then the middle part was very much about the social impact of um, software, um, you know, to, uh, you know, how it's affected people with, you know, things like social media and all of that. Uh, but even also inside the industry itself, like for instance, how it, it's pretty much the only profession that has this huge gender gap. And while mm -hmm. other professions with gender gaps have gotten better, <laughs> computer, right. computer programming has gotten worse. Right. Um, and, you know, the causes of that investigates the causes of history, that fascinating stuff that some of it I didn't even know. And then talks about, uh, you know, it, you know, the future a lot in present and the future, which actually I find fascinating because, you know, uh, nowadays you can go and get a degree in computer science and even go and get a PhD in computer science and be that type of programmer, but you could also go to a boot camp for 15 right. weeks. <laughs> and he actually breaks that open and talks about that like Good. in detail about what is what's the difference and mm -hmm. and how is it working out for people? And what is, you know, what's the deal with like people changing professions, never coding, and then suddenly being taught how to code. And now they're working as coders as opposed to somebody that started coding as a 10-year-old and then went and got multiple degrees in computer right. science and you know all this what's the difference in how there are you know essentially white collar coders and blue collar coders now uh things like <laughs> That's uh, an it, interesting it, distinction yeah and and and, and uh, there's crossover of course anyway it's a fascinating book if you are a computer programmer at all um i think it's just a really uh, great way to actually uh, a lot of unique angles at looking at the industry that we're in. Um, so I highly recommend that book called Coders and we'll have a link to it. I just added it to my want to read list on Goodreads. Yep. Yep. That sounds, sounds really cool. So the closest thing to a commercial for this podcast is our own blatant self-promotion. Yeah. Uh, this week, I would like to point people to how do I determine a short links destination? Um, ironically, uh, you can get to that via the short link, askleo.com slash 10356. It's a kind of short link. I'm actually surprised that there isn't more visibility about this kind of issue because I think we've all seen on uh, spam emails, especially phishing and so forth, that you'll often see the real destination of a link cloaked behind sometimes multiple short links, multiple redirections. So the thing you click on isn't really where you go. It takes you to somewhere else that takes you to somewhere else that takes you to a final destination that had you known that was the destination, you might not have gone there. Mm. Yeah, um, there's at least one online service that I point to in this article that will tell you uh, specifically where, uh, where a link will take you as its final destination. So how do I determine a short links destination? Important one. I've got uh, one that is a, um, a, a an interesting video. Uh, have you ever heard of key bindings? Sure. 
Yeah. So key bindings aren't new. They actually <laughs> Unix, Linux stuff that's been around for a while. Right. But Mac OS actually has key bindings, its own key bindings that are not necessarily inherited from any of that, that have been around for a long time, but very few people know about them. A lot of people know how to make keyboard shortcuts for things on the Mac. Right. Um, but key bindings are actually a separate lower level thing. And basically what they, what they are is there's a layer. When you press a, a letter, like the letter A on the keyboard, mm-hmm. um, it actually sends a signal and says, this key was pressed and key bindings say, oh, you want the letter A. Right. You could change key bindings. Well, so well, you could do, yeah, I believe so. You could wow. do all sorts of bizarre things with key bindings, including, you know, so creating your own keyboard shortcuts that do things at, a, at more of a system level. Now, it really only applies to typing because it's such a deep level. You can't have a control like launch an app with it or something like that right. because right. that's higher level. Right. But if you wanted, for instance, to hit control and you know A and have that type out a sentence, you could do that. Matter of fact, you could even nest key bindings. So you could do something like control A and then press the letter you know, I after that. And it will do something based on the nested set of key bindings. It's a really bizarre thing that most people don't know exists. Nobody really talks about when I decided to kind of break it open and and show how to do it. Um, It's actually fairly simple to actually set up your own key bindings. It's Um, interesting. I'm sure Windows has the same concept. I just don't think they expose it. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, this is exposed, but it's, it's just not talked about very often. And, and you could do some really co- cool things with them because, because you can nest them. So you could do something like, you know, people do a text replacements all the time. Mm-hmm. I type something like, you know, exclamation point email, and it types out my long email address, you know, and that's like a text replacement. But you could go into key bindings and then actually just have like control shift E actually, you know, the computer mm-hmm. thinks the keyboard just sent me this text. Right. And, and it's kind of, it's, so it's really a fascinating, interesting thing. And for those that are like, you know, love keyboard shortcuts and want to actually look at a completely different way to do some interesting keyboard stuff. Um, I did a video on key bindings, so we'll link to that. Question for you though, um, yeah. is key bindings how the Mac OS implements things like the Dvorak keyboard? Is that just swapping out a different set of key bindings? I think there is a relation there. I mean, it's very weird because at the one, uh, in some ways they are really low system level things, but in other ways there are apps that avoid them. Like Microsoft Word selectively avoids some key bindings. Like they just don't work in Microsoft Word. (laughs) And it's like, how is it doing that? It should be before Word even knows what's going on. And the terminal window in, you know, which is an app called Terminal on the Mac, has a whole set of its own controls. So it also ignores key bindings. And But you could do some of the same things if you're just working in Terminal. Of course, the shells have uh, different things yeah. that you can do. Yeah. So how, but how is Terminal avoiding them? So it is kind of an interesting, weird, like I'm not sure of everything that's going on underneath, um, but it's... Right. It's fascinating. And then of course, the thing is, if you if you need your key bindings to work in pages, mail, in web browsers, and a few other places, and they work in all those places, well, then they for you, they work everywhere. <laughs> you know, so that's the the bottom line. So anyway, interesting, interesting stuff for those that want to dig deeper. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. 
Um, so I think that pretty much wraps us up this week. We'll see if um, if the video sees the light of day. Yeah. <laughs> um, the show notes for this week will be at tehpodcast.com slash teh141. If you've got a comment or a question for us, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment on the show notes page. As always, thank you so much for listening and perhaps watching. Thanks again for being here, and we will see you again next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.